0: Hello? Hello, Julia.
1: Hi. Hi.
0: Okay, you're there. Dawn?
1: Oh, sorry, I was on mute. Yeah.
0: Hmm, 2020 strikes again. So, okay, welcome back to the PJ Pod. We're going to be answering readers' questions about COVID-19 vaccines today, right?
2: Yeah, I think we've got a good few questions that have come through.
0: And you guys have called your own experts as well, haven't you?
2: Yeah, for some of the questions that I didn't have the answers to or need a bit of an expert input into, I've uh, scoped out some people who can answer them for me.
0: And uh, you've put the dog away, have you Dawn?
2: Yep,
1: I've taken her out for an hour-long walk, so she should be quiet.
0: So I don't know about you guys, but it's really starting to feel now that we've turned a corner in this pandemic, doesn't it? With one vaccine being approved and two under consideration by the regulator.
2: Yeah definitely.
0: So we should probably introduce ourselves.
1: Yeah well I'm Dawn Connolly and I'm the features editor
0: at the Pharmaceutical Journal.
2: I'm Julia Robinson, I'm clinical and science editor.
0: And you may have heard my voice before, I'm Nigel Prates, I'm executive editor. So, Julia, it's been an exciting few weeks.
2: Yeah, really exciting. It's kind of crazy to think that this time last year we knew nothing about this COVID-19 virus. And now there's just so much information and so, so many new pieces coming out every single day. It's been really tough trying to keep on top of it all.
0: But I guess it's quite hard to get reliable information, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it's odd because a lot of the results have actually been announced via press releases from um, the pharmaceutical companies. And they haven't actually been peer reviewed. And that's normally a big no-no for us. We'd always want stuff that's published, peer reviewed. But... Obviously, because things are happening so quickly, we feel it's really important that we report on all of the developments. And although we're still waiting for all of the data, so we've still got some data to come through about efficacy and safety, there's been lots to delve into.
0: But obviously, you can't overstate the progress that has been made over this year in terms of developing these vaccines. It's pretty incredible, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, normally you're looking at 10 years to develop a vaccine from start to finish. And so the Pfizer-BioNTech jab apparently is the fastest vaccine to go from concept to reality. And it's taken only 10 months to follow the same steps that normally span an entire decade. Plus, it's the first ever mRNA vaccine to be approved for use in humans. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, the genetic sequence for the SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, um, was only released in January. So to have a licensed vaccine less than a year later is really
0: impressive. And there are some really quite innovative technologies being used, aren't there?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, these technologies are new, but um, the researchers did have a bit of a head start. You know, they were already working on vaccines for cancer in BioNTech's case. And um, the Oxford University were working on a vaccine for... Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So, you know, they were unable to employ a sort of plug and play approach to these new vaccines um, and, and adapt them quickly for
0: COVID. But obviously there have been some questions over the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine this week.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I attended the press conference for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and there was a lot of excitement there at the um, 90% efficacy figure for the half dose, full dose regimen. Um, And this compared with only 60% for the full dose, full dose regimen. But what didn't come out of the press conference was that the low dose was actually a mistake as a result of a change in the manufacturing process. And so there was a bit of a backlash against that. Some commentators criticised the fact that the study didn't set out to test that particular low dose. And there were also reports that there were no over 55-year-olds in the low dose arm of the study Um, So that could have affected the efficacy data as well. But really, we just need to wait for the full data to be published before we can make any judgments.
0: Yeah, and of course, they they were reporting that it was 70%. How did they get to that number?
1: That's a combination of the the 60% figure for the full dose and 90% figure for the half dose regimen.
0: Yeah, that's a bit naughty, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a, bit, a bit odd. I actually thought the same when I was reading a news story about it. It did kind of strike me that it was strange that they were pulling data from two quite different trials. Um, yeah, so I think it, I think it's important that they've highlighted this because, I mean, the public are never going to take a vaccine if there's, if there's doubt over it. So definitely to be as transparent as possible about all of this process to get to a vaccine.
0: Yeah, and even 60% is good for a vaccine. Isn't
2: mm, yeah, definitely. The FDA, for example, the Food and Drug Administration in the US, only, um, they'll approve a vaccine that's 50% effective or more, so, you know, 9 to 10 is, is amazing, really.
0: Right, so shall we start with some of our questions from readers?
2: Definitely. Let's get into it.
3: Hi there, PJ Pod. My name's Kevin Cahill, I'm an emergency medicines pharmacist working in the acute Hospital Trust.
0: My virology may be a little bit rustier than I like to admit, especially when it comes to the mode of action of most common vaccines found on the UK market. Would it be possible to explain the mode of action of these new COVID-19 vaccines, please? I think we've all had that this year, haven't we, in terms of brushing up on our, our immunology?
1: Yeah, I'm glad someone's asked this. It's a good question, great way to kick us off.
2: Okay, so, so far the UK government has secured doses of four different COVID vaccines from seven different manufacturers. So these include two viral vector vaccines, two messenger or mRNA vaccines, one inactivated whole virus vaccine and two protein adjuvant vaccines. So most of the vaccine candidates focus on immunisation with the virus's spike, or S-protein. So that's the familiar spike that studs the surface of the coronavirus, giving it that crown-like appearance. And these proteins play a really important role in the virus's ability to bind to and infect healthy cells. So the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna COVID vaccines are mRNA vaccines. And this means they contain the genetic sequence for this all important spike protein. So when injected, the mRNA gives instructions to our cells so that they can effectively produce this spike protein for themselves. They then display the spike on the surface of their cell and this stimulates the immune system to start producing antibodies and T cells as it would with the natural infection. And the point of all of this is to train the immune system so that next time it encounters the virus, it can act much more quickly to get rid of it. Uh, And also the thing about the mRNA vaccine is that the mRNA aspect will naturally degrade after a few days. So that's
0: the mRNA vaccines. What about the ones that have been produced by Oxford?
2: Yeah, so the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID vaccine is a bit different. So it's a viral vector vaccine and it uses a weakened common cold virus called adenovirus and it's from a chimpanzee.
0: Wait, this is from a chimpanzee? No, no, no.
2: So it's, it's a virus that would infect a chimpanzee rather than a particular virus that infects humans. And they use that virus as a vehicle to transport the genetic instructions for the spike protein directly into the host cells. The cell then produces the protein, stimulates immune response, as I was talking about before. So um, I wanted to find out a little bit more about why these two vaccines seem to work so well. So I went to Charles Bangham and he's the chair in immunology and co-director of the Institute of Infection at Imperial College London.
4: When you administer the RNA or the viral vector, they will produce newly synthesized protein inside the cells. And that elicits a better immune response than a dead recombinant protein because it more closely mimics the way in which the virus itself will infect a cell and elicit immune response. So in general, the mRNA vaccines and the viral vectors will be better at eliciting not only antibodies but T lymphocytes. And for an efficient immune response, we need both. We need both antibodies and T cells and indeed the, of course, the B cells that produce the antibodies. So they've been shown to elicit good antibody and immune response, uh, T cell responses, both the mRNA vaccines and the adenoviral vaccines too.
1: So when he was talking about the dead recombinant protein, was, is that a different type of vaccine?
2: Yeah, I think he was comparing it to some of the other types of, sort of vaccine technology that could potentially be used and, and using it as a way to explain why we've had such good um, results from RNA and viral vector vaccines
0: hasn't there been some bluster on the internet about these mRNA vaccines interfering with our own genetic material?
2: Yeah, this has been one of the sort of many myths, I think, that's been circulating about it. But I wanted to find out for sure. So I asked Charles whether he thought it's something we should be worried about.
4: Um, In short... No, the risk that it somehow interferes with our own genetic material is just not there. That's a misconception. It will not happen. So that's not a problem. The more general question is an understandable one. And of course, we don't know what the long-term effects might be. But it's important to realise that most of the adverse reactions to a vaccine are evident either immediately or in the first few hours or days following vaccination and if they haven't been evident yet it's unlikely that at least they will be in a very high frequency so I am quite reassured by the data that have been emerging on the use of the mRNA vaccines that they seem to be really quite safe.
1: I guess it's only going to be a year or two down the line when we have that long-term safety data.
2: Yeah, and I think it's probably important to say as well that the medicines regulator, the MHRA, are going to be keeping track of people after they receive the vaccine and sort of monitoring safety on a long-term basis. It's also worth mentioning here that we do have an infographic on the PJ website that provides a nice overview of all of the vaccine types being looked at and we'll include a link in the show notes so you can take a look. And
0: actually, have have we said about quite how they managed to develop a vaccine in such a short period of time?
1: As I mentioned earlier on, the researchers did have a head start because they were adapting some already existing technology. But there's also the fact that he, there's been huge investment from governments around the world. So, you know, ordinarily researchers would spend years applying for grants and trying to get funding for their research. Um, But the huge investment has meant that hundreds and thousands of scientists have been able to work on these vaccines. Um, And the other thing is there's been a high number of cases of COVID, which obviously isn't a good thing, but it has allowed very rapid recruitment into the trials.
2: I think another thing to mention as well is that where, whereas a lot of the stages of vaccine development would, would be done one after the other, in the development of the COVID vaccine, there's been quite a lot of overlap between different stages of development. So, for example, manufacturers started manufacturing the vaccine sort of at risk before they actually knew the results of the phase three trials. But this means as soon as we received the results, they already had vaccine produced and could hit the ground running with getting them into people's arms.
0: Okay, thank you, Julia. That was a really good intro to kick us off. Um, so we have another question from Jasper Sohol over Twitter. And she asked, why do we need so many different vaccines?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one. Well, the, the thing is, we need to vaccinate the whole world, and that's almost 8 billion people. The problem is the manufacturing capacity and also how easily these vaccines can be distributed to various countries around the world. Even if the three companies that we've been talking about were to produce as many vaccines as they could, that still wouldn't be enough to vaccinate everyone. So we need more than one vaccine. That's definitely not contested. We might also find that as more vaccines come through, some will work better for certain patient groups than others. And some might even provide longer immunity than others.
2: The idea is kind of have more shots on target, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the UK government, they've um, pre-ordered four different types of vaccine from seven different manufacturers. So they're really spreading the risk.
0: Uh, Is another reason for lots of different vaccines? Because we don't quite know yet how long they're going to last in terms of immune response.
2: Yeah, so it's really difficult to say at the moment exactly how long the vaccines will protect against the virus. Simply because not enough months have gone by yet. Evidence shows that if you've had COVID, you're protected from reinfection for at least three months, maybe even longer than that. So far, the data from these vaccines suggest that they're actually generating a better and more long-lasting immunity than the natural infection so it could be that immunity lasts quite a long time. To get into the science again as Charles mentioned we're looking for a vaccine that stimulates our T helper cells so that we can develop what's called a good immunological memory which basically means that next time our immune system encounters COVID it already knows how to tackle it. So live viruses like the adenoviral vaccine that's being developed by Oxford, they do this really well, we know that. And the RNA vaccines also seem to induce a really good T helper cell response. But as I said, we need the months to pass, we're able to measure this properly and see how long it lasts. Really interesting detail about the adenoviral vector vaccines is that it's possible that some individuals may actually have existing immunity to the adenovirus vector itself or they could develop immunity to it after receiving their first dose, and that immunity could hamper the overall efficacy of the vaccine. This is one of the reasons why the researchers at Oxford University used a chimpanzee adenovirus, as it made existing immunity in humans a lot less likely. So when I spoke to Charles, he also said that another possible solution is that, assuming both the RNA and the viral vectors turn out to be effective, One could be given as the first dose and the other could be given as the second dose.
0: And do we have any evidence yet about whether the coronavirus is mutating or changing like the influenza virus?
2: Yeah, I think experts
1: do think that the virus is mutated a little. Um, You might have heard about the mink in Denmark, but they don't think it's mutating as quickly as, for example, the flu virus. So the good news is if the virus does mutate substantially, then the vaccines are easy
2: to treat using these new technologies.
0: Good. Right. So uh, shall we go to our next question?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think we've got one from Nutantana.
1: Hi, PJ Pod. Uh, It's Nutantana, pharmacist consultant in women's health. Uh, And I have a question. What patient ethnicities were included in each of the COVID vaccine trials? So when you look at the data, um, the ethnicity could be actually stratification by ethnicity or race. But really, to mine the data, to try and evaluate to see if there's a particular vaccine that may be more suitable, for example, the BAME groups? Thank you.
2: Yeah, so this is a really important question, because research has shown that people of black ethnicity are twice as likely to be infected with COVID compared to those of white ethnicity, and people of Asian ethnicity are about one and a half times more likely to become infected. So I was having a little bit of a look through the participant diversity figures that Pfizer have published. And it says that in its phase two, three clinical study, 5% of participants were Asian, 10% were black, 26% were Hispanic, and 1% were Native American. In terms of the observed efficacy of their vaccine, they said it was consistent across race and ethnicity demographics. And this was also the case for the Moderna vaccine. So In their study, they had 196 cases of COVID, and of these, 42 were participants who identified as being from diverse communities. However, for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, their researchers said that participants were from diverse racial and geographical groups, But there wasn't any more detailed information than that. And I was reading an article about this and this is something about the trial, another thing about the trial, which has been questioned.
0: That's quite important, isn't it? So we're waiting for the full data on this again.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think it's also important to mention that back in October researchers sent out a call for more volunteers from Black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds to participate in the COVID clinical studies, with the aim of ensuring that any of the vaccines developed would work for as many people as possible. And apparently at that point, they had about 270,000 volunteers, but only 11,000 were from Asian and British Asian backgrounds, and a really small 1,200 were Black, African, Caribbean or Black, British.
0: All right, thanks team. Um, So we've had a few questions actually about the efficacy and safety of the COVID vaccine in various different patient groups. Here's a question from Rina Patel.
1: Hi PJ Pod, I'm a community pharmacist based in London. I would like to know what information is available for the new COVID-19 vaccination and lactation and also in pregnancy please. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really good question from Rena, because um, a lot of people ask be asking pharmacists about that. Okay, so all the trials that we've been talking about women that were breastfeeding or pregnant were excluded from so there's actually no data for the vaccines in this group of patients. Now, Public Health England say that although there isn't a known risk for giving these um, vaccines in pregnant or breastfeeding women, there isn't enough evidence of their use, so they recommend that pregnant women should wait until they've had their baby before they receive the vaccination.
0: Really? So you'd have to wait? I didn't know that, of course.
1: Yeah, and presumably until after you've finished breastfeeding as well. It's likely that companies will research this um, in due course, but... First of all they'll need to do some um, reproductive toxicity studies in animals and I don't think that that has been done yet either.
0: And what about the evidence in in children?
1: Yeah I mean children compared with adults children are at much lower risk of contracting Covid and if they do contract Covid then it's usually a mild um, disease for them. So the vaccine isn't going to be recommended routinely for children although Public Health England have said that you know as they collect more data once the vaccine programme is rolled out then they'll think about whether it might be appropriate for some children with specific conditions to receive the vaccine. Um, In terms of the trial data, as far as I know, it's only the Oxford AstraZeneca um, trial that has included some children. The other two were just for adults over
2: the age of 18. Okay, let's have another question.
0: This question came from Catherine Burnett, who's a pharmacist in the West Midlands.
2: Hi PJ Pod. My name is Catherine Burnett and I'm a hospital pharmacist and I have two questions. My first is if you have already had COVID, should you still receive the
1: vaccine? And secondly, if you receive the vaccine, but then later on catch COVID, is there a risk that you will be more unwell than if you had not had the vaccine?
0: Good question.
1: Um, Well, the answer is yes, you should still receive the vaccine if you've already had COVID. Um, They've looked at this in clinical trials, and there's no safety concerns associated with receiving the vaccine if you've already had COVID. And also you might get a better immune response from the vaccine than you would produce naturally from having the virus.
2: What if you currently have symptoms or perhaps are asymptomatic but have a positive COVID test?
1: Yeah, well, Public Health England have said that if you do have symptoms, you should really wait until you've recovered before you have the vaccine. And that's really because they just um, want to monitor The side effects, the potential side effects from the vaccine, so they don't want to confuse this with any deterioration in your disease.
0: And what about the second bit of Catherine's question? If you get the vaccine and then catch, or unfortunate enough to catch COVID, is there a risk that you will become more unwell?
1: Actually what they found in the clinical trials was that if you did receive the vaccine then you're very unlikely to develop severe disease so I think only one person that received the vaccine went on to get a severe case of COVID and that's amongst tens of thousands of people who received it.
2: Yeah and I think we had another question through our website didn't we about another specific patient group specifically immunocompromised patients? Okay yeah well the
1: people with HIV were included in the trials so there should be some data on that group of patients coming through soon although we haven't seen it yet. I mean the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is a live viral vaccine but it's non-replicating so it's thought to be safe in people with immunodeficiency. Another thing to remember is that people who are immunocompromised might not mount a full immune response to a vaccine, but that applies to all vaccines, not just the COVID ones.
0: So the next question comes from Terry Dowling, a general practice pharmacist, who asked about all of the nitty gritty details in storage, transport, reconstitution, handling and administration of the vaccine. He says, I think our healthcare colleagues will turn to us for this information when the situation arises?
2: Yeah, this is a really big question. So if we start with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, because obviously this is going to be the first one uh, that's going to be deployed. So most of us probably know now that this vaccine needs to be stored at around minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is very cold. Uh, And it means it will have to be transported in dry ice. And because hospitals already have the facilities to store at this temperature, the sort of very first vaccines will be delivered from there while they work out how to get it to care homes uh, and other care settings. And once thawed, the vaccine can be stored for five days at two to eight degrees, which is the temperature of a regular fridge. But once out of the fridge, it needs to be used within six hours. And another thing about the Pfizer vaccine is it has to be diluted with saline before it's administered each of the vials of the vaccine has five doses in it. And the vaccine, of course, should be administered in two doses and that's a minimum of 21 days apart. So
1: that actually doesn't sound as bad as you might think then, so it doesn't have to be kept at- Frozen all the time. You can keep it in the fridge and outside of the fridge whilst you're delivering it.
2: Exactly. So it's it's probably not as bad as we we thought it was going to be maybe a few months ago. Uh, but there does obviously have to be a plan in place because I think you can only move it a couple of the vaccine a couple of times as well. So there definitely needs to be a careful sort of plan for that journey.
0: And it comes in massive packs, doesn't it? So yeah defrosted one, you've got to get through that pack. How how many were are in a pack
2: i think it's about a thousand uh in a pack
0: yeah and if you've got five days to get through that you you need to get vaccinating
2: so what about the vaccine from oxford yeah so this is maybe a little bit simpler because it can be kept at two to eight degrees all the time But because it doesn't contain any preservative, once it's been opened, it has to be used within six hours um, if it's being stored at room temperature and within 48 hours if it's being stored in the fridge. So each vial contains about, I think it's eight to 10 doses of the vaccine and should be also administered in two doses. But in this case, it's a minimum of 28 days apart. And both of the vaccines are administered as an intramuscular injection into the deltoid of the upper
0: arm. And what happens if you miss that second dose or you, you it's longer than the 28 or 21 days that's recommended?
2: Yeah, so I've read that if an interval longer than the recommended number of days is left between doses, so 21 days for the Pfizer vaccine and 28 for the Oxford vaccine, then the second dose should still be given uh, and the course doesn't have to be restarted. And there's no evidence yet, but studies are underway to look at whether the vaccines are interchangeable. So whether you can have one vaccine and then the other. Um, So until we have that data, it's advised that every effort should be made to find out what vaccine the person received to start with and complete their course with the same one. However, as I explained before, they're all based on this spike protein of the coronavirus. So it is likely that the second dose would help boost the response of the first, even if they're different.
1: OK, next we have a question from Samir Goswami who asks about the practicalities of delivering this vaccination programme within community pharmacies.
4: Um, hello, um, PJ Podcast. Uh, my name's Samir Goswami. I'm a pharmacist in, in Nottingham. I work in quite a busy community pharmacy in North Nottingham. We've been delivering flu vaccinations there for a number of years. Having read today through the kind of physical service specifications that pharmacists have to have in order to deliver the COVID vaccination, um, it doesn't appear to me that most pharmacists will, will, will fulfill the criteria required in terms of the, the space needed, the kind of physical capacity of the refrigeration needed, Uh, the ability to deliver a a service over um, the business hours of the pharmacy and more, I think, according to the specification. And um, so I'd like to know what what your kind of thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, Samir's right. There's some very strict requirements for these vaccination centres. And I think only a few community pharmacists are likely to be able to act as a vaccination centre in the first, at least in the first phase of the vaccination campaign. Um, simply because they're not going to have enough storage or the appropriate storage and they're not going to have enough staffing to be able to administer these vaccines, which um, the government is expecting vaccination centres to run for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and to vaccinate a minimum of of 1,000 people each week.
0: That's a lot of people, isn't it? But what what about over time in terms of when the Oxford vaccine comes on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think once the Oxford vaccine comes along, which, um, as Julia said, can be stored in a in a normal refrigerator then that might be where pharmacists can start playing more of a role
0: and we had a related question um on that from christina greer who's a clinical pharmacist in manchester and she was she was asking when can we receive the vaccine which um i'm presuming was meaning pharmacists there And she was saying that she worked in integrated care settings.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question from Christina. You know, pharmacists are working on the front line. So um, they are going to be one of the among the first groups of people to be offered the vaccine. Just this week, the JCVI, which is the committee that advises the government on vaccines, um, published the priority list. um, And top of that list is care home residents and workers. And after that, it will be people over the age of 80, as well as health and social care workers, which should include pharmacists.
0: That's not that's not quite how it's being rolled out, in, at least initially, though, is it?
1: Yes, that's right, Nigel. There seems to be some problem getting the right number of doses to care homes in England. Whereas in Scotland, they're just going to split the packs and vaccinate the residents early on. In England, people who are over the age of 80 or healthcare workers will be invited to go to one of 50 hospital hubs that are due to open from Monday to receive their vaccination. Then in the new year, GP practices, mass vaccination centres and some pharmacies will come on stream.
2: Yeah, so this is all a bit academic, isn't it? If um, no one actually turns up to get the vaccine this was a point that was raised by Zashan Ahmed. He's a care home pharmacist and he said that potentially pharmacists are going to be receiving a lot of questions from sceptical members of the public about the vaccine. So what should they be saying? Okay, yeah, I think pharmacists can really reassure their patients because there's actually already a huge safety
1: database from these three vaccines that are coming through. Um, for most vaccines that are licensed in Europe, they've only been tested on around three to 5,000 people, but... For the Oxford vaccine, for example, that's already been given to twice as many people as that during the clinical trials. And the trials for Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech are even bigger than that. So there's, there's a lot of data out there already um, to show that these vaccines are safe.
2: Yeah, I heard a really good analogy in a webinar um, from Peter Openshaw. He's an immunologist at Imperial College London. He described vaccine development as being a bit like a milk float doing its daily deliveries. So coming up against traffic, red lights, bumps in the road, etc. He said in the case of the COVID vaccine, it's simply that all the traffic lights are green. There's no traffic on the roads. We're still making the same journey. We're still completing the usual safety checks. But it's just that everyone is doing everything they can to smooth the way as much as possible to make that journey as quick as possible.
0: Yeah, I think. Oh, but also it's an emotional argument, isn't it? When people don't want to have a vaccine. What I would I would really love to see like celebrities coming out and people having it, you know, show, showing that um, there's nothing to fear. And that actually it's a really good um, way to protect yourself and your family. That, that That's kind of a message, isn't it? That should go out.
2: And actually, at least 60% of the population needs to be immune to COVID in order to achieve herd immunity. Um, So that's either people who have had the virus and developed natural immunity or have received this vaccination. So this could take a long time, but we need people coming forward to have the vaccine in order to achieve it. Okay, so where could we be in a year's
0: time? Will these vaccines help us get back to some kind of normal?
2: So this is the question on everyone's lips. And it wasn't one I could answer myself. So I went to Stephen Evans. He's a professor of pharmacoepidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And this is what he said.
3: So in a year's time, it will depend on how much virus is about, together with the R number at that point, as to whether that pool of virus is increasing or decreasing. and assuming all goes well, whatever virus is about is likely to be decreasing in a year's time and it may be that we're able to suppress the virus in the UK to very low levels. The big issue then will be whether we have succeeded in suppressing the virus globally. It's no good having really good vaccination rates uh, here and if immunity doesn't last, indefinitely, and the rest of the world, low and middle income countries, are deprived of the vaccine, then we will suffer as well. We're in this in a global situation
2: Stephen also said that in the short to medium term, even once people start to be vaccinated, we will still need to be doing all of the things that we've been doing for the past year. So that's hand washing, that's wearing our masks, that's carrying out social distancing and all those other measures in order to continue to limit the spread of the virus. That can't just stop now that we have a vaccine.
0: So we won't be going back into the podcast studio anytime soon.
2: Sadly not. Zoom it is for the foreseeable future. On the plus side door and we've all really enjoyed seeing your dog prancing around in the background. So I hope
0: we've provided some clarity there to the people that submitted their questions thank you to everyone who took the time to write in to us
1: yeah and keep sending them in you know if we get enough we might do another podcast i'm sure there's going to be loads to discuss in the coming weeks
0: yeah this podcast
3: will
2: probably be out of date in a week or two anyway
0: so we're undoubtedly going to be doing more of these q a podcasts so if you have any questions do get in touch with us on twitter or the email addresses will be in our show notes and even more importantly, subscribe and leave a review. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye-bye. This podcast was presented by Dawn Connolly, Julia Robinson and myself, Nigel Prates. It was produced by Jeff Marsh. You've been listening to PJ Pod, brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. You can join the RPS for the equivalent of 60 pence a day. Just search RPS membership to find out more.
2: Bye.